Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In 1995, legal scholar Derek Bell spoke to the Institute about racial libel as American ritual. One of the founders of Critical Race Studies, Professor Bell worked at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund alongside Thurgood Marshall and Constance Baker Motley. He taught at Harvard Law School until 1990 when he left to protest the school's lack of female African-American faculty. He spent the remainder of his career as a visiting professor at New York University Law School until his death in 2011. Derek Bell will speak. He is visiting professor at the NYU Law School. He was on the faculty of the Harvard Law School between 1969 and 1980, and again between 1986 and 1992, having meantime been dean at the Law School of the University of Oregon. He has written several books, of which the most recent is Confronting Authority, Reflections of an Ardent Protester. Professor Bell. Thank you. I gather the value of these sessions is in the discussion. So I want to talk rather generally about my subject, racial libel as American ritual, so as to lay the foundation of questions that can go much further. Libel in generally is a damaging defamatory, false representation published maliciously with an intent to harm. It's important and seems to me a relatively unexplored aspect of race in America. Of course, it has a historic dimension. Defamation is a principal means of justifying persecution, exploitation, uh, subjugation of a group. So that you have to demonize before you can destroy. In the mid-1600s, in the process of establishing slavery, as we learned from Edmund Morgan and other historians, those rich whites who were able to afford slaves uh, and could profit from slavery had to do two things. First, they had to convince everyone, including themselves, that enslaving another people was moral, uh, right, and God's will. They also had to convince those whites who couldn't afford slaves and in fact, who would be seriously disadvantaged by slavery, that Africans were the other, uh, were the enemy, and that they, all whites, owners of slaves and those down in the yeoman ranks, all whites had to stand together to fend off this danger. It's interesting, it worked then, and in varying forms, it's continued to work. That is that interesting coalition between those whites who have so much 
And those who, for the most part, don't have a damn thing. We see it now manifested in the flat tax and its popularity uh, among people who God knows can't understand why. But it seems to me that racial libel was an important part to, to this effectiveness, to this connection, to the stability that brings. Slavery, of course, was a blatant form of subjugation, so that the defamation had to be equally blatant. Blacks were deemed neither human or, if human, vastly inferior humans to whites. Enslavement was deemed a favor because it served to bring civilization to very uncivilized people. The physical differences from Europeans were used as positive proof of the inferiority of those who didn't look like the Europeans. Later studies focused on difference in brain size, resemblance to apes, and so on and so on. And of course, intellectual capacity, or lack of it, has long been a favorite libel topic in the racial area. In modern times, Arthur Jensen, Mr. Herenstein, Dr. Herenstein, have kept this libel alive. The recent book by Herenstein and Murray, The Bell Curve, is only the latest and perhaps the best marketed of a long line of publications that defame blacks as a means of shifting blame, particularly in bad economic times, thereby comforting white anxieties about their place and convincing whites that a hard line regarding blacks will solve social problems or move them toward solutions. Now, the viability of this form of liable remains great. In modern times, there's a greater degree of sophistication. We have what is called the code words, a Willie Horton for black crime, welfare queens for blacks on welfare. Lonnie Guinier was demonized as the quota queen. The phrase affirmative action has become a synonym for the selection of blacks less qualified than rejected whites. The political value of affirmative action is great. Uh, Senator Helms, who is a blot on the nation in every possible regard, owes his seat to the use of that scurrilous uh, uh, television commercial in which the pair of white hands are tearing up this rejection slip. And the voiceover says that the job went to a less qualified black. Suddenly, the advantage that the black candidate had just disappeared in Helms' return, notwithstanding his opposition not only to civil rights matters and racial matters, but to most of the issues that concern the working class in North Carolina, who voted overwhelmingly for his reelection. Even the Supreme Court has brought into the general and rather libelous definition of affirmative action, so that the most rigorous review of racial classifications that generally was used over the years to strike down invidious discrimination, and now is being applied to efforts usually rather modest to correct for past discrimination, admissions area, and, and so on. Uh, interesting enough, the strict scrutiny standard, no, the, the, this very heightened review has no effect on continuing discrimination, most of which is masquerading under some neutral classifications that simply serve to disadvantage minorities. But those issues that intended to correct for past discrimination usually have race mentioned right within the classification, and they are now deemed, even by the majority of the Supreme Court, as fair game for findings of unconstitutionality. It's so interesting that it's forgotten that racial remedies, including affirmative action, no racial remedy is ever adopted, certainly not implemented, unless it serves primarily the interests of whites, or some of them. 
I just wish somebody would come up with an exception to that, but there aren't any. Uh, going all the way back to the Emancipation Proclamation to now, my own experience, I was a civil rights lawyer, and I wanted to be a, a law school teacher. Nobody was interested. Tony Amsterdam, who many of you know over at NYU, wrote letters for me. It was a major law school back in the mid-60s. Nobody was interested. In 1968, though, after um, Martin Luther King was killed and after the urban rebellions uh, took on a rather threatening character, suddenly everybody was interested. I had offers from all of the schools that didn't <coughs> bother to respond to Tony. We kind of forget that the major beneficiaries of affirmative action were those institutions that were able to kind of clean up their act, at least in the token way, by the bringing in of a few blacks and later many women. Now much of the opposition to affirmative action takes the form of opposition to blacks and Hispanics, but much less to white women who are, of course, the principal beneficiaries of these programs. It's interesting to look at the California's ban on affirmative action in, by its regents of higher education, that they claim that they're doing this for merit, but as a matter of fact, they have probably as many legacy admits as they have a minority admits. And the legacy admits, according to some of the studies, show some of the same admission criteria as do the minorities. So much for merit. Interesting, now that it is politically unpopular, most institutions that utilize affirmative action are very quiet about it. The rather conservative New Republic magazine reported with some glee last summer in its June 26 issue that the even more conservative Washington Times down in D.C., which editorially never misses a bet in condemning affirmative action as race-based quotas. According to the New Republic, in fact, the Washington Times sponsors minority intern programs and works very hard to keep blacks on its staff. Well, racial hypocrisy is, is usually a part of the racial libel mix. There's an interesting subset of political libel, which you might call criminal libel. And it's both illustrated by a piece a week or so ago in the Washington Post. A headline was, police say Maryland man had fiance killed and blame black robber. And the story goes, a 23-year-old Pasadena, Maryland man who told police he was shot and his fiancee slain during a robbery near a Baltimore park was charged yesterday with hiring the gunman to kill her and then wound him to cover up the crime. Robert Harris and the alleged trigger man, Russell Brill, 22, of Baltimore, <coughs> were charged with first-degree murder in the death of Theresa McLeod. McLeod died Friday after she was shot six times during what Harris said was a robbery in the parking lot of a southwest Baltimore park. The couple was scheduled to be married in September. Harris at first told police that a black man wearing a camouflage jacket and a black and white pants shot him and McLeod after ordering them out of the car when they told him they didn't have any money. Harris and Brill are white. The case prompted comparisons to several similar highly publicized cases in which the killers tried to blame black suspects. Investigators said inconsistencies in Harris's story led them to consider him a suspect. Although McLeod was shot six times and declared dead at the scene, Harris was shot once in the leg and was released from the hospital <laughs> after being held overnight for observation. She gets shot six times. Harris gets shot once. You think that's questionable? Asked homicide detective Daryl Massey. Police said Harris promised Brill $20,000 to carry out the scheme. 
Detectives still were trying to determine the motive from a cloud slaying, but believe it was financial. The case, the story goes on, as you probably already recognize, bears similarities to the 1989 Massachusetts case in which Charles Stewart said a black man was responsible for shooting him and killing his pregnant wife. Stewart committed suicide in January 1990, hours after police learned from his brother that Stewart had concocted the story and killed his wife himself. And of course, last year, Susan Smith was convicted in South Carolina of drowning her two children. She originally had said a black man had kidnapped her children. These culprits used the white public's fear and antipathy of black people to mask their heinous acts. And then that, in those small illustrations, you get some of the larger picture that once they decide that they're going to blame a black person for it, any kind of sense of planning seems to go out the window. <laughs> and they do things that, you know, maybe the Stuarts got away with it for a week, but after that, even police don't like to be uh, lied to, you know, and made fools of. Of course, the hoax has also gained plausibility, both because of these myths with regard to black criminality, but also because black crime is real. Of course, it's no less real than the racial discrimination caused poverty and hopelessness that underlies so much violent crime. And the failure to deal with the cause leads to an inability to separate the real from the myth regarding this danger. It's only surprising, actually, given this exclusion from traditional paths of upward mobility, that more black men don't choose crime as their means of making it in a society that equates wealth with power and success regardless how you got it. Of course, there's no willingness to acknowledge this, and even little tolerance for those, particularly blacks, who speak out very forcibly about it. It's so interesting, an aspect of this thing is that a society that is ever ready to libel blacks deems any criticism by blacks of whites and of the society generally evidence of ingratitude at best and dangerous sedition at worst. Now, the retaliation has varied over time, but there's never been very much tolerance. David Walker, the free black who moved from North Carolina to Boston, sold secondhand clothes. 1829, he published his famous Walker's Appeal in four articles. It got widespread distribution, both in the North and in the South. In the document, he urged blacks to resist slavery. He said, aren't we men as well, then quoted the Declaration of Independence in regard to the right of the oppressed to rise up even using force if that were necessary. Walker, of course, disappeared and was never heard from again. The myth perpetuated by the film Birth of a Nation, the reason for lynching has generally been that blacks kill because they're trespassing on white women. They're raping them, they're looking at them, they're passing by too close to them, whatever. The truth is that many blacks who have been lynched over the years have been lynched for defying the libel of their incompetence and have been competing successfully in business, sometimes just by building a nice house or a church or establishing a workable farm. In Paula Gettings' book, When and Where I Enter, she reports on the murders in 1892 of three black men who were lynched just outside Memphis for having the audacity to start a grocery store that was both successful and it took away business from a white store owner who previously had a monopoly on black trade. That atrocity motivated both Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells into their lifelong struggle against lynching. Historians like Eric Farner agree that retaliation against blacks who dared compete successfully with white men 
was the real motivation of many, perhaps most of the thousands of blacks lynched during the latter part of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th. Foner puts it, the most offensive blacks of all seem to be those who achieve the modicum of economic success. He quotes, Foner does, a white Mississippi farmer's statement, the Klan do not like to see the Negro go ahead. Even in modern times, blacks who have spoken out against racism have faced retaliation. W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, the Nation of Islam. One of my stories that I guess has gotten more attention than others is my space trader story in which aliens come from some far off star and land and say, we're here for peace. And uh, we got in these huge ships we brought along with us enough gold to pay off debts at the national, state, and local level, chemicals to clean up the environment, which is getting worse and worse, and the, uh, um, a, a nuclear engine and fuel that will replace your fast disappearing fossil fuel sources. They say all the thing we want in return is we want to take all black people back. So we're going to give you a couple weeks to decide. In the story, I go day by day how various groups react to this. And at the end, it's submitted to a referendum and by a 70 to 30 vote, America decides, hey, we're going to take the trade. And the end of the story is blacks being taken off in chains as their forebears had arrived. Well, that story was made by the Hudlin brothers into an HBO film. And it won a few awards and what have you. And we said, I sent them the second part of that story and all. But I haven't heard anything about it. Well, it turns out while it won a few awards, it also generated an awful lot of uh, letters from individuals, uh, listeners who said, how dare you? So uh, it's not dead, I gather, but the project is, is in serious, serious trouble. Uh, it's not only, I mean, even the TV round, uh, it, this is no, not totally envy, but it, it's some. Did you ever notice we, have, we get very few blacks on these TV roundtable news programs? And most of those are quite <coughs> moderate political persuasions. Now, interviewers love to have on people like my friend Stanley Crouch back there, uh, Robert Woodward, Glenn Lowry, because they mostly deny racism is a problem. And they place most or all the blame on blacks. So everybody's entitled to opinion. It's just that those guys get their opinions on TV a hell of a lot more than some of us who feel that racism is the most serious problem that we have to face. We also have a, have a new genre of scholarly libel. And the exemplar, of course, in the, in the last few months is Denise D'Souza's End of Racism, in which he defames blacks, but with seeming regret. Gee, he seems to be saying, as a person of color myself, <laughs> I hate to say these things, but they have to be said. Well, even with my primitive search skills on electronic databases, I found that literally dozens of magazines and newspapers had published reviews of the D'Souza book. Now, true, most of them took it to task, but they did review it. And as you know, in the book promotion business, getting reviewed is much more important than whether or not the review is favorable. Moreover, whether they found it good or bad, most of the reviewers took the book seriously. The Washington Post reviewer found the book maddening and in places unspeakably vile, littered with half-truths and questionable assumptions. But there you got your Washington Post review. Mm -hmm. For some that, that seemed critical, they ran out and bought it based on, on that. The San Francisco Chronicles book review editor found D'Souza's ideas stripped of scholarly references and academic language as, quote, simplistic and dogmatic as those of any bigot. 
Time Magazine called The End of Racism's, quote, the bigot's handbook, found it one of the creepiest books to appear in years, and concluded that D'Souza will say whatever it takes to attract attention, no matter how tasteless, irresponsible, or distorted. Boston Globe book review editor said, it would be hard to imagine a book from a serious publisher that is more ignorant about America, more profoundly insulting toward black Americans than the end of racism. But attention sells books. First printing of End of Racism was supposed to be 100,000 copies, according to free press uh, agents. But in a society that values celebrity over competence and scandal over substance, D'Souza has proven adept and a leader in an increasingly crowded field of individuals anxious to provide what activist Julian Bond views as, quote, a pseudo-scientific and ahistorical confirmation that whites are, after all, superior to blacks and that racism, once considered an embarrassing evil, has vanished. Attacks on racism by writers like Cornel West, Bond maintains, it simply can't compete with the apologies for racism written by the Charles Murrays and the Denise D'Souza's. Bond goes on, these writers offer whites a release from guilt and absolution of any responsibility for the cause of the present day condition of blacks or for its cure. With D'Souza, there's sort of a surface plausibility to his arguments. And it must prove irresistible to whites who feel bogged down in the bottomless swamp of racial issues. People looking for a rescue rope of rationalities to pull them to a safe, secure position. D'Souza offers them that rope. Bond summarizes the kinds of attractions that this piece has. He said under D'Souza, no one is responsible for black poverty except the black poor. So no one, certainly not the taxpayers, is responsible for setting it right. Discrimination doesn't exist. So we don't need the pesky anti-discrimination laws or affirmative action anymore. Black people occupy lower income, occupational and educational rungs on society's ladder because of self-inflicted pathologies, not historic or present day discrimination. Whites don't want to work or live to, or go to school with them, not because of color prejudice, but because of class differences. What a relief. And Bond adds, what a country. Well, after 300 years, it's easy to see the temptations that move so many in this country to take comfort in specious racial assertions rather than join the search for solutions to conditions that devastate and debilitate whites as well as blacks. But this relief comes at a very high cost, rendering many whites unable to recognize their own need to recognize their own disadvantage. Surely one would think that they would see that the effort to ignore black poverty obscures, desensitizes them to the fact that two-thirds of teenage mothers are white, two-thirds of welfare recipients are white. White youths commit most of the crime in this country. It's well known that the rate of drug use by pregnant women is not significantly different across race and class lines, and that drug use in general is as prevalent in the suburbs as in the ghettos. And yet, as novelist Ismael Reed says, in the popular imagination, blacks are blamed for all these activities. In the manner the Jews took the rap for the black plague, even in countries with little or no Jewish population. So today, the country's black plague seems to me is an economic rather than a physical illness. But as with the plague, the toll among those who are victims of the downsizing mania is large and growing. Fear is rampant among the potential victims whose jobs and income could disappear at any time. Deficit is high, so Congress wants to reduce it by cutting social programs. 
that served the needy whites while increasing the defense budget and other forms of corporate welfare that nobody seems to be concerned about, or at least writing about. The income and wealth gap grows greater, but the budget cutters are anxious to pass tax cuts in the capital gains area and otherwise that will further benefit the already well-off. Again, in any of these areas, it just seems to be the presence of this overriding racial libel prevents people from seeing their own interests in these situations. Unable even to identify the real source of the malady, many whites place on affirmative action and its putative beneficiaries the onus of the nation's ills and their growing anxiety. And given its rather distracting lure, it's clear to me that affirmative action is bad for whites. Not because, as D'Souza and others claim, that incompetent blacks are stealing jobs from worthy, qualified, hard-working whites. That off-stated charge is simply not so, or at least not more so, than is the long-accepted practice of allowing well-placed but otherwise unimpressive white folk to take jobs from more qualified but less well-connected whites. Rather, it's a bad because, as Noam Chomsky warns, Large corporate entities are transforming America into a third world country, and they're doing it behind a smokescreen of racial code words, welfare, crime, and most befuddling of all, affirmative action. While much of the country vigorously opposes affirmative action, it ignores the real threat to jobs, that is profit-obsessed corporate executives who seem quite willing to tumble the nation into a crisis in the long term if they can earn more by reducing the workforce in the short term. Sure, there are the warnings about this in a few books, Jeremy Ripkin's The End of Work, Michael Lenz, The Next American Nation, Charles Reich's Opposing the System, but there seems to be little notice of the, the dangers that these books detail among our political and policy-making leaders. Certainly, these economic dangers were not mentioned in President Clinton's State of the Union message. Indeed, he declared the economy in great shape. And that speech was well received not only by the media and policymakers, but evidently by much of the public. Now, there are many factors here, but one of them is the presence of a blame-taking people, the increasingly dire lives of many of whom apparently encourage the heaping of even more wrath, the shifting of more blame. The racial libel they see as a cure is actually a smokescreen that masks the increasing jeopardy of the libelers. Thanks. Okay, Stanley. Well, <laughs> I was thinking about the fact that it seems that that you feel close to people like Paul Robeson, who was a communist dupe, who was carrying the flag for Joe Stalin, who was one of the worst murders of the history. Unarguable. Uh, Eastern European writers were amazed when they would wheel this guy through there while the communists were standing on their heads and he would be saying, water boy and stuff. The Black Panthers, you were there. I mean, this was a hoodlum organization going by Huey Newton, Bunchy Carter and those people. I knew them. They were, they, they were bullies. They were crooks. And if you got it, and if you argued with them in the meeting, as you well know, Derek, they would pull a gun on you, like they did on James Foreman. You remember his nervous breakdown was brought about by the fact they stuck a gun in his mouth in the meeting. Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. Malcolm X, when he was speaking for the Nation of Islam, he was also trumpeting Mal uh, Elijah Muhammad's line that the, the white people were a mad race invented by a, a bulbous-headed scientist 6,000 years ago. That was also 
part of what he had to say. And the Nation of Islam, who was Farrakhan, who gets more time on television than him. Further, Cornell West, I mean, I think he, between Cornell West and, and Louis Farrakhan, I think those two guys on, on television more than anybody. And finally, I think partial part of what we really are talking about is that all of these persuasions are commodities. Cornell West gets paid $12,500 to give an hour of speech, and he's on the road all the time. I don't know anybody except a Watergate burglar or something <laughs> like that who gets paid more than that. So, so even if you, so if you commit some terrible crime, if you're out of the North, the first thing you know is that after the trial is over, you can go out on the lecture circuit for $30,000. So it seems to me that the real problem we have here is whether or not the rhetoric, whatever the side is, can become something that suggests that we as Americans have a common fate that transcends these categories. And as long as people like you and others sell these categories as so distinctly, in such a distinct existence one from the other, it seems to me that we play into this game that you claim to be against. Because the United States has, has long had a running battle with the worst manifestations of capitalism, whether it was slavery, whether it was uh, exploitation of child labor, whether it was vile uh, drugs and meat. I mean, that's part of the American story. But to act as though this, these demigods and the corporations exist above the will of the people, when the will of the people is about identification with common American problems, seems to me a fraud. Well, that's almost another speech. But let me let me say, at the start at the end, the fact is that I'm not sure that I don't want to call corporate executives demagogues. They are above the people in terms of not being responsive not, nor accountable. The only people they have to account to is to the stockholders and these Wall Street analysts who applaud wildly every time they lay off another 2,000 people. As to the list, Stanley, of black folk who you have mentioned, the failings, some of which are accurate, some of which are not. I don't know anyone, perhaps except Jesus Christ, who is not subject to the kind of things you did. Are, were these perfect people? No. But where are the perfect folk? In addition, we have all kinds of folk who have those credentials that you paraded, and worse, who are not touched by this system. These people, whether good or bad, were brought low because they dared to speak out. Paul Robeson wasn't brought low because he was a communist dupe. He was brought low because he had the audacity to claim that racism in America existed and that it was bad, you see. As far as the commodity thing, I think you have a point, and it's one that I worry about a great deal. That is, this is a nation of commodities in which everybody has some angle Whatever your position is, it can be commodified. Uh, the need to find a commonality is certainly there, and the time in which we have to find it is growing less and less. But the thrust of my speech is to talk about the barrierality that are raised and have always been raised along racial lines, using libel as one of the, the major tools for erecting those barriers. And the recognition of that uh, may be at least a, a kind of a start toward, uh, toward removing it. My major thrust is that blacks and whites, unless you're up at the top, then it doesn't make a difference what color you are, are in very serious shape. 
you see, that there are very few of us except those who are tenured. And as we know from New York City, uh, the university's experience, even tenure doesn't protect you when the when stuff really gets bad. We are in this nation going through a economic transformation as great as that at the beginning of this century when we were moving from an agricultural society into an industrial society, really moving. I guess it really started much earlier, even after the Civil War. And there was great harm. Great suffering that occurred. I think the one today, because of the presence of computers, because of communications, because of transformation, Rifkin says it, the end of work, that they simply will not need all the people that we have. And it seems to me, when I listen to Clinton, when I, when I listen to the Republican counterparts, I don't hear any mention of what I see as the most dire threat facing our, I mean, we depend in this country on work. I, you would agree with me on that. Work enables you to pay your bills. Work determines your status in the society. Work determines a lot of your self-esteem. I'm not sure that if we went up to Bed, out the Bedford Steyer, up to Harlem, and said, here are jobs and training for everyone, that all the problems would be removed. But they sure as hell would be diminished. You see, if we're folk who weren't all totally, totally lost. But we're talking about, as we saw in 60 Minutes a few weeks ago, executive level people, people who were committed to AT&T or to Chemical Bank or to Chase Manhattan. They weren't going to be CEOs, but they had a comfortable life. They could pay their mortgage, buy a car every three years and send their kids to college. And now in their 40s and the 50s, wipe out. It hits those people, it hits their families, it hits a whole lot of people who say there, but for the grace of God, go out. And I just wonder how long it's gonna be before some politicians move beyond either the use of racial libel or the fear to use it, which is some of our more liberal candidates, and honestly, courageously, forthrightly address the serious problem that faces our nation. Thank you, and thank you all. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.